Welcome to the Inclusive Mental Health Podcast, Crossroads in Therapy by Belong. In this podcast, we will put therapy under a magnifying glass and enkindle the spirit of intersectional mental health. In each episode, we talk to experts with adequate professional and personal experiences in tackling mental challenges faced by marginalized communities. The title for today's episode is Locating the Site of Peace in Conflict-Affected Regions. While multiple mental health organizations as well as professionals have been working extensively with communities affected by conflict and violence, there has been little to no conversation around the dynamics that dictate their therapeutic engagement. The geopolitical location of a professional impacts their ability to provide an affirmative space to persons affected by acts of violence especially by the ones perpetrated by the state. In this episode, we talked to Ufra Mir, who is the first and the only practicing peace psychologist from Kashmir and South Asia. She works at the intersection of science of psychology, mental health psychosocial support, education, art and peace building. She has been recognized as one of the top 10 Kashmiri women achievers, which includes a recent Lal Deer Khatun a Kashmir Award for her contribution to peace psychology work focused on the well-being, healing and peace building in Kashmir. Stay tuned as we discuss the possibility of situating harmony in a therapeutic setting, a political space. I welcome you, Ufra, to this episode. Hello, thank you for having me and for this kind introduction. Right, so Ufra, you are First, I'm the only peace psychologist in Kashmir and South Asia. Can you describe your journey into the field of peace psychology and how your experiences as a Kashmiri woman fit very well with this field? Thank you for that question. There were psychologists who were concerned about the state of the world after world wars, and they thought maybe we needed a psychological lens to also understand what was happening with people, especially in conflict settings and conflict zones. So if you look at American Psychological Association, they have a division dedicated to psychology and conflict studies. So it's not a very new field, but it's not very well known. And that's why from a very common perspective, most of the fields that we, subfields that we know of in psychology concentrate around clinical psychology or counseling psychology or school psychology for uh, very understandable reasons. But psychology is a vast field and you now have anything from aviation psychology to, you know, fashion psychology. So peace psychology is just one of the sub branches, which is a very eclectic field as how I understand it. And you have so many things from where you can understand it better from political science to media psychology to peace building, etc. back in 2005. I started getting trained in some of the techniques of mediation and conflict resolution as a young teenager and took psychology for the first time. I fell in love with psychology because it helped me in a way to understand some of my own personal emotional struggles as a Kashmiri better. And I just remember sitting in that classroom and imagining how much more useful this can be if I can, you know, take this back to, let's say, my people back in Kashmir. So that became the sole motivation of me kind of looking at psychology. But I also wanted it to be something that's relevant for people back home because I realized 
there were either people working on psychology or there were people working on peace building or you know understanding conflict etc and i felt that there was a gap and i wanted to bridge that gap and for me that bridging gap was peace psychology because it's a combination of both the fields so you use a psychological lens to understand the psyche of peace and conflict and what happens to people in these settings that their attitudes their behaviors certain so individual community and then system level what can you then do to you know create spaces for healing for resilience and to also advocate for human rights for justice so for me that felt like the right kind of thing i wanted to do and it felt like i had finally kind of understood what was the bigger purpose of you know me being in this world so that's where the journey started and then i went abroad and i had to also design my own modules around these things i got training in a lot of peace building techniques i studied mental health well being peace building so it's been a long journey and after that i came back and i've been practicing in kashmir in myanmar and a few other places for more than a decade now so i don't know if that that answers your question yeah if that's how the journey started basically definitely and it's a beautiful journey i must say you have conceptualized multiple initiatives in kashmir one of them is paigam can you just briefly touch upon these really brilliant initiatives and what was the objective behind these initiatives mm-hmm. So Pagam again actually started as a non-profit back in my college in the US when I was studying it started as a conflict resolution and peace education organization and later on realized I was doing much more so for me my peace psychology model that I use is very holistic very inclusive very eclectic so I use modalities of emotional well-being intelligence you know non-violent conflict reconciliation dialogue leadership mental health psychosocial support art in conflict or brain on peace and conflict so it's a very eclectic holistic module to give you some examples and when i realized that you know for me that was a very comprehensive very inclusive and very multidimensional way of understanding humans in their own context and then trying to see how we can you know support people to make that change that they aspire for also kind of counteracting the perceived normal that becomes a very integral thing in conflict settings where the abnormal is the norm and to also attack the problem maybe at its root levels so pagam basically started there and i did a lot of work with it i stayed in the us after my college and got it registered and we also started some initiatives in different countries after that but my ultimate goal was to bring that here because Kashmir was the sole motivation why I had even started that. So after I came back I have been voluntarily working in Kashmir on ground with different kinds of communities and groups as you mentioned. And Pagam was uh, one such initiative through which I was doing experiential workshops, I was doing awareness campaigns on mental health for instance, I was doing you know peace education programs in schools with young children with youth doing a lot of conflict analysis work dialogue spaces at community levels so pagam has been a journey i think an extension of what i wanted to do peace psychology because when i started peace psychology i also didn't know what it exactly was it just made sense to me 
So Paigam, basically, I think for me, it's an evolution of who I have also been through this journey of learning and unlearning and understanding things from ground perspective and then putting them in broader perspective and taking the ground learnings at international you know, forums to help people understand what is happening, let's say, in Kashmir at a psychological lens, given my perspective of peace psychology. So Pegam for me has been very instrumental in that way. And now it has evolved into an international center for peace psychology, where I'm hoping to do more research-based work, more advocacy, and more focus on education and practice with collaborations, you know, with educational institutes and other international organizations. And when I came back, one of the things that I realized was there were not enough spaces or safe spaces for young people or for people in general to express. And that really impacted their emotional well-being also in some ways. We have to be mindful that in a setting like Kashmir, there's so much of learned helplessness, hopelessness and powerlessness that sometimes the abnormal becomes the norm and there is a growing sense of numbness and really scares me. So a lot of like the bigger vision or the foundational vision of peace psychology for a setting like Kashmir for me is to create a pause, a bridge where people can ask themselves, you know, is this normal? And they can have a safe space to explore a lot of these ideas about themselves, their healing, their pain where they feel comfortable. And that too, when it happens in a group setting, it helps them because then they realize that they're not alone in this. There are other people also going through this. And me being a Kashmiri, it becomes easier for them to connect with me because I understand the language. Some of these things have happened with me as well. I also, as a professional, have been going through, let's say, anxiety. So then it becomes easier for me to speak to them and connect to them. So experiential workshops have worked wonderfully for me in these 10-12 years. The other initiative that I think that has been useful is uh, something I call Zundab. Zundab is a Kashmiri word for a traditional space in Kashmiri houses from where you could see the moon basically. So Zoon is moon and Dub is basically a room. So Zundab I use as community safe spaces where again we come together it's facilitated by a professional, so I facilitate those conversations, but people share their stories of resilience, of struggles, of pain, of suffering through storytelling or through whatever narration they feel comfortable with. But it's also a way for them to come together as a community in safe space and to also use that space as a support system then. Because in mental health, I think psychosocial support also plays a huge role, especially in a place like Kashmir where again, there's a lack of good resources, the system is broken, infrastructure isn't great. So a lot of my hope was to also create these small communities who can you know, interact with each other beyond my intervention also. So that has really worked wonderfully. One more initiative that I would like to mention is listening corners that I started doing to help people, especially young people. I've been using social media to create listening corners where young people share their problems and they want, you know, let's say information about resources in Kashmir, who they should contact for mental health issues, or generally like issues about existential crisis, spiritual crisis. So it's also become a space to normalize, firstly, support seeking behavior, to destigmatize conversations around mental health, and to build spaces for better understanding and information dissemination, dialogue, and create meaning out of personal suffering. And 
you know, I, for instance, use Instagram for a lot of that. And a lot of young people connect to me on that space on a daily basis. Thank you for sharing such praiseworthy work that you're doing in Kashmir, as well as others' geographical locations. Ufra, you've been working since quite some time, I guess since 2011, if I'm not wrong. Yes. And it's been almost a decade. How do you think your idea of peace or peace building or peace work has changed through this decade? (laughs) That's a very tough question. I always have a hard time, I think, responding to this. I think if you had asked me this 10 years ago, I would have given you a very flowery, rosy response because I think I was a lot more idealistic back then. But having worked on ground, especially in a setting like Kashmir or Myanmar, I think some things have obviously changed for me in my understanding of how I see it now or my perspectives on it. But one thing has remained very clear to me that I think for a lot of people, you know, the understanding of peace is very futuristic. They see it in future. They think it will happen someday. Or maybe when, you know, there are no negative events happening, that is what peace is for them. For me, peace is a process. It's a journey. It's not a product for me. So it becomes a way of life. So you have to live it day in and day out. And just like healing, it's not linear. It's not that you start your journey on day one and then on day 10, you're totally transformed. It doesn't work like that. There will be days when you feel like you have to go back and start from scratch. And that actually happens way more often than we realize. But for me, it has been a process. I think that's how I understand it. And it's more about positive peace building, not negative peace, which is more about just the end of violence or war. And for it to be a positive kind of experience process, you have to work on it every day. It's not going to happen. You know, if we think it's, I want to have peace after 10 years. I think some of those things may also work for people. When people go into mountains, they think they're having moments of calm and whatnot. That's okay. But for, I think, peace to be sustainable, it has to be a process that you have to keep working on it every day. Peace is when, you know, let's say there is chaos all around you. Do you have that inner pillar of strength, of courage, of authenticity, of resilience to hold on to? I think people think about it in just the opposite. I think people think peace is when everything is rainbows and butterflies. I don't think that is what peace is. Peace is actually, can you be who you are with all of your authenticity, resilience, when everything is falling apart? And what do you do with whatever you have, the skills you have, the coping mechanisms you have to support others, not just yourself? That is how I basically understand the psyche of peace that that I've understood in these 10 years. And one thing also that has become clear to me is, I think, especially in peace building, there's so much focus on neutrality. But having worked in Kashmir, I think neutrality is a bogus concept. I don't think it really exists. You can strive for it. But I think I'm better able to support my community, for instance, because I am from this community. And it has both pros and cons. Because I'm the same Kashmiri who's also gone through a very similar suffering as people have who I work with. But I can also empathize with them at a very deep level. They don't have to, you know, I mean, make things very crystal clear for me because I understand the context and I can make a deep connection with them. 
but obviously as a professional it also has a cause that takes a different kind of toll on your own well-being and mental health as well mm-hmm. yeah definitely and that's what my next question is also about you know there is no dearth of research that proves how the kashmir conflict has taken a huge toll on people's mental health in your experience what are some of the mental health challenges that the community is facing at the moment i think firstly we need to acknowledge that there's a growing or ongoing mental health crisis in kashmir owing to the system the the broken system the conflict that's happening here lack of resources you know i think we still have a lot more clinical psychologists who are trained well now but back in those days we hardly had few psychiatrists we had very few psychologists and in a place like kashmir where everybody is affected in one way or the other we still have i think very few professionals we need a lot more resources we need a lot more infrastructure but i think a lot of it is also because there's so much of unawareness about what is happening on ground in kashmir like whenever i have to communicate even about mental health crisis in kashmir i have to first talk about what is happening on ground which gets very much ignored in a lot of conversations that are happening and we need to understand that mental is political i think we need to move away from that my mental health issue is my mental issue it doesn't work like that our mental health is a combination of a lot of things including genetics the environment we grow up in our life experiences and what not and then in a setting or in a place like kashmir when where there is an ongoing conflict it is kind of understood that it is going to have an impact on everything you do from your decisions to your well-being to your healing so in that all of us i think every kashmiri in one way or the other is affected in some way from a mental health perspective and the challenge remains to share this with the bigger world i think there's still a lot of silence around this which is really apathetic in a lot of ways and again from a resource perspective from you know funding perspective from practitioners perspective the challenges are really really huge there's so many people who don't even know what is happening to them because the abnormal has become so normal to them and there's a lot of numbness in how they see things yeah and of course i hope that you know the listeners definitely make it a point to go through the already existing research about the same given the context of historical oppression in kashmir do you think that the mental health professionals or psychosocial support workers in kashmir who hail from oppressive communities or regions can do more harm than good do you think that they might fail in their approach it's a good question but i'm not sure if i honestly i mean it's making me reflect and i'm thinking about it but i think firstly there are two three things that can happen in my case let's say if i'm from the same community it actually helps me it becomes my strength to connect with people to empathize and to understand a lot of nuances that you don't understand if you're not from this context or from this place the other thing can happen as i was speaking just before this is that because you're also the part of the community and you're also maybe suffering in a lot of equal ways that can maybe stop you from using your capacity to the best of your abilities in some ways there's not a lot of support system for professionals especially let's talk about kashmir for instance i started having anxiety with what happened in 2019 and i think 
as professionals, we don't get a lot of safe spaces to even express what is happening to us because we're always focused on others, trying to support others. So because of that, maybe that can impact your training, that can impact your practice, obviously, because if you are not doing well, it is going to impact your overall work. And I have, for instance, consciously tried to step away whenever I feel like I'm not able to focus on my own well-being. I try to take quick breaks. But the context in Kashmir is so volatile and it's ever-changing. Like, let's say if I'm speaking with somebody on phone today or on Zoom today, about their healing or talking about some support mechanisms they can use. The internet is shut down, let's say, tomorrow. The next conversation, we have to start from scratch in a way. And it gets really exhausting for that person and for myself as well. So those are some of the, I think, challenges in a way impact the work that you do. The lack of support in general, the lack of awareness about ethical practices, Kashmir, let's say, is a very, very close-knit community where a lot of times people don't feel comfortable going to professionals because they're not very sure of their confidentiality practices when that is the core of, you know, these kind of professions. And in Kashmir, everybody kind of knows everybody. So it becomes difficult for them to then go to a stranger and trust this person and share their experiences, especially with so much taboo around, you know, relationship issues career issues and with what is happening to you now because of the conflict there's not a lot of space to express what you actually want to express uh, with what is happening to your mental health because of that so I think those are some of the things in way I would want to respond to that question but I will probably want to think more about it yes one more point that I just wanted to quickly mention was in some cases you know people take, let's say, Western practices, and they just directly want to copy paste them into settings like these. My understanding and learning from these years has been, you know, Western practices may be great, but they may not always work in contexts like Kashmir. In Kashmir, for instance, for a lot of people, their immediate psychosocial support is talking to their siblings on phone every day, like my mother's generation. It's very important for her. And it really helps her. It helps her mental health. And a lot of other things, like the initiatives that I spoke of, they're actually all devised around the Kashmir context, being very sensitive, being very mindful of the cultural practices here, of the spiritual practices here, or the religious practices here. So one has to be, I think, very careful in that because I've seen this happening in a lot of places where people sometimes just copy, paste, or borrow ideas from the West which is great. You can maybe use them as reference or framework, but you have to be very mindful in how you want to then practice them on ground because the settings can be very different. Yeah, definitely. And of course, my next question was very much related to your answer about the need to recognize and realize the dynamic of any space, especially when working with clients from regions under conflict you had mentioned that you have worked with countries which are still under conflict, for example, Myanmar. How do you think that your psychosocial support work differs when you engage with the question of difference and uniformity in peace work? So the reason I actually chose to do peace psychology and eclectic model I use was to actually counteract this whole problem. I think 
humans are different they're complex so you need a very multi-dimensional approach to understand different people what applies for one person may not work for another person you know my healing process is different from another person's healing process so this is why i also have in the practice i do as a peace psychologist given the range of modalities i use it gives me a very flexible lens to understand people and offer support from that perspective I don't think uniformity is helpful in contexts like these because you need to understand even though the maybe the larger political context may be same for everybody but how it affects different people can also be different because people have different kinds of resilience mechanisms they have different levels of resilience and how they react or respond to situations or these settings can be very very different from one person to another So again, your initiatives, your support services have to be very specific in that way. There are some things, let's say, if you're working at a community level, you can apply things in a different way at a large group setting kind of perspective. But with individuals, you have to always treat them as a unique individual and offer the support accordingly. And in that, I think listening or empathetic listening becomes important. really important even as professionals you know we're taught to be listening actively and empathetically but i think a lot of us still find it difficult to do that and that's understandable it's not easy but i think really deeply listening to people to understand where they're coming from you have to be very mindful of not using a very uniform approach in these situations in general also i think mental health issues can be very unique and how one person responds or heals can be very different so you have to really listen at least to understand what is happening to this individual and how can you best offer support or refer them to other professionals yeah Yeah. Ofra, we now move to our last segment, which I call reimagining inclusive therapeutic practices. My first question to you under this section would be that it's been a while since you've been working in Kashmir, as well as other conflict zones. So, according to you, which psychosocial interventions, if you have to name a few, have been successful in your work, and what are the kind of mechanisms that need to be developed to improve mental health situations in regions such as these i think i already talked about the some of the initiatives that have worked for me like the experiential workshops i do where i design my own modules and they're need based so i do a lot of assessment before i go on and do these and the listening corners or the community safe spaces zone dub that i was talking about so i don't want to repeat those but again i think it sometimes it surprises me but it's not shocking but with the conversation in the rest of the world obviously has shifted from now mental health to inclusive mental health but in kashmir we're still talking like on a daily basis i spend a lot of my time helping people understand the difference between a psychiatrist and a clinical psychologist and a counseling psychologist or a psychotherapist there's so much unawareness on ground and i sometimes feel like i've been saying the same things for 10 years you know i'm still saying the same things in some ways the context is ever shifting and changing but the problems have remained the same there is a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of creating more awareness about who can you basically go to I think we still have to do a lot of work on and the resources people don't know who they should trust who they should go to 
I get a lot of messages every day around. I want to speak to a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Who should I speak with? I don't know. When in Kashmir, we have, let's say, there's an institute, a regional institute called IMHANS, and they have wonderful practicing psychologists from clinical psychology, counseling psychology, psychotherapy, and psychiatry there. But again, there's so much stigma, and in some ways, it affects women a lot more also because we live in a society where a woman's identity gets really affected. Like I've had cases where parents didn't want to take their daughters for professional support because they thought if the neighbors got to know who will marry their daughters tomorrow when the proposals come in, it will really affect the whole process. So the challenges remain. I think throughout the conversation, I've been sharing them. We do need a lot more awareness on ground level, a lot more trained professionals, not there are a lot of quacks also now who don't sometimes have the proper professional degrees. So there's, again, a lot of unawareness about that too, because in Kashmir, there's people sometimes, because there's so much lack of these support and systems and resources. If somebody, you know, talks about mental health, they trust that person. They don't sometimes verify their credentials. So it's also important to it's your right as a client or as a person seeking support to, you know, ask your professional what is your experience or what is your qualification. And we also need to understand every psychotherapist is not trained in everything. So a lot of my work voluntarily focuses on using spaces to talk about these things, to create more awareness, to also not promote malpractices and quacks who actually end up doing more harm than good in these settings. We have had cases last year where some an MBBS student, somebody from law, somebody from engineering was going around as mental health experts, creating hopes in people. And obviously because they're not trained, so they were doing more harm than good. There were people who got really impacted by whatever interventions they tried to do. And one thing I've noticed is when I speak to people who don't, let's say, come from mental health backgrounds and they want to do mental health work, it is disastrous. It's as simple as that. And it's not just about counseling or one-on-one interaction. How can you, let's say, design a workshop or write about mental health when you don't know it, when you don't, you haven't studied it, you don't have the proper qualifications and the experience or the training. So sometimes people tell me, you know, I'm not doing counseling, so it's okay. I'm just doing workshops or seminars on it. It doesn't help. It does a lot more damage than you can imagine. Yeah, and I think you justly paint a very complex picture that almost everyone should be exposed to because mental health work or psychosocial work is not an easy job, especially when you know, you're working in a very difficult terrain. Ufra, you have had multiple engagements with mental health workers in the past. What advice do you usually, you know, give them when they're working with people who are affected by violence and conflict? Firstly, I think it's important to check your own biases. Like all of us can be biased and it's completely okay to be biased as humans. So let's say if you have a strong bias about something and you think working with that person based on your bias will not be effective, I think you have to be very honest from the very beginning that this is my bias and refer them to somebody else, as simple as that. 
because it's quite okay to have biases obviously we need to work on our own biases and prejudices but to ignore them is actually doing more harm to yourself and your practice and to people you engage with so that is firstly very important and then you cannot save the world i think the savior complex i've also gone through it i used to initially really really struggle with it because you know there were no healthy boundaries people would call me sometimes at 3 in the morning and it still happens sometimes if there is an emergency or urgency i respond to them but because of where i started my whole journey there were there were very few psychological support systems available in kashmir and a lot of my volunteer work along these lines in kashmir was because i wanted to you know help the community i felt like i needed to do it if not me who will do it i could not keep waiting for others to come and help us but i also felt like i need to save everybody i need to help everybody and you cannot do that and with time obviously i've learned that and realized what you can do and cannot do has to be very very clear for you because it is really important for your own mental health and your well-being as well and to really really respect professional boundaries is so important i think a lot of people in mental health settings don't think they are important but i think they are absolutely important and the last point i want to mention is self empathy and self care as professionals i think and again this comes from a lot of personal learning and unlearning being in this profession we cognitively know these things we you know we support others in these things but especially as women in these cultures and societies who are so used to giving and where thinking about self is considered selfish it's very very difficult to practice self care and self empathy for me also we can only support others better when we also take care of our own mental health and a lot of that comes from understanding and accepting that you are also a human being in the end and you have your own needs and you need self empathy self care self compassion to do a lot of work that you want to do for others thank you so much for underlining that and i think these were a really really inspirational words for not just mental health and psychosocial workers but rather almost everyone who wishes to engage with diverse communities around the world ofra thank you so much for being here taking time out and answering our questions thank you so much for having me and for bringing this conversation that means a lot to me i really appreciate you taking out time and space for me in this and hope this conversation is useful and helps people maybe think more reflectively on things i hope so too 